Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is an expert on Russian foreign policy who is a first-time guest, Kadri Leek, a senior uh, policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks very much for joining me today, Kadri. Uh, my pleasure. All right. Um, uh, today I'd like to discuss the concerns about the Russian military movements near Ukraine and in Crimea. Uh, which have generated many guesses, uh, I'd say, about what Moscow's intentions might be and fears of a possible new offensive in the coming months. Uh, I think a good reference point uh, is your opinion article last week in the New York Times. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but uh, I think you argued that as a rule, uh, Russia's foreign policy um, is more about finding its way in an increasing increasingly complicated world uh, than it is uh, necessarily about disrupting the West, uh, and that Russia is in fact acting cautiously uh, in many cases. At the same time, though, uh, you singled out Ukraine uh, as an exception to to that rule, uh, suggesting it's uh, in a different category, perhaps, because uh, Russian control over Ukraine, as you put it, seems to be President Vladimir Putin's very personal and heartfelt goal. Now, I would certainly agree with that based on Putin's uh, written and spoken remarks about Ukraine uh, in the past uh, and also particularly uh, in recent weeks and months. Now, you also described uh, the hopes and fears of Russian officials regarding Ukraine, including the hope that uh, U.S. President Joe Biden might formally close the door to NATO for countries like Ukraine as outlandish. Um, Now, against the backdrop of uh, Russia's military buildup and suggestions that it could potentially launch an offensive early next year, how dangerous do these these factors, I'm talking about, you know, Putin's uh, apparent focus on Ukraine and the the perhaps outlandish uh, hopes and fears about Ukraine that that Russian officials uh, have have expressed how dangerous do these factors make the situation um, over the next few months and and even in the longer term? I think it is reasonably dangerous, and one needs to take it seriously. Um, but maybe I should um, start my answer by commenting uh, briefly about the non-Western focus of Russian foreign policy. Because I think that is the trend that has largely escaped Western attention. But it's becoming more and more prominent in Russia. Because for a long time, like quarter of a century, the West was really focal point for Russia's foreign policy. Everything they did was uh, driven by the desire to either cooperate with the West or... Uh, hedge against it or bargain, negotiate, gain leverage, so forth. Right. And now that is slowly changing. Um, I think the change actually may have started even in 2012 when President Putin came back to the Kremlin and uh, basically reconceptualized Russia as a non-Western country and started cultivating non-Western relationships as an as ends in themselves rather than something to use as a leverage in its relationship with the West. Iran might be a prime example here. Earlier, 
Moscow was always happy to sell its leverage with Tehran to Washington, and then suddenly it, it was not. Mm-hmm. But also later on, during the pandemic, there has been a debate happening in Moscow about how to reconceptualize foreign policy for the world where the dominance of the West is fading anyway and chaos is gaining ground, as people in, in Moscow see it. And there have been some pretty programmatic articles by um, the likes of Sergei Karaganov or Dmitry Trenin or Andrei Kortenov, all coming from different angles, but but trying to grapple with the same problem. Mm-hmm. So it's not like everything they do is, is these days about the West. And many things that started out being about the West, like invasion of Syria, where really I think Putin wanted to resolve the crisis in ways that didn't imply democratic regime change the way, you know, Western thinking went. Now I think uh, that operation has acquired a different logic and presence in the Middle East is is producing benefits for Russia that have little to do with the West, but but maybe a lot with oil price or things. So Mm -hmm. it's more complicated than we have seen. But Ukraine is really a very of emotional point for Russia. And I think the one uh, area where they have wrong facts and wrong analyses, because on on many issues, actually, Russia's analysis is, is not so bad. It, again, if you look at Middle East, Russia knows the region and maybe gets it better than the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could explain why on some areas they have been more successful than the West. They, they read the, the place. Right. But Ukraine, they don't. Um, and by now, many in the Russian establishment understand that the invasion of Ukraine in 2014 was inspired by wrong assumptions about the country, its society, everything. Many acknowledge it, but but I don't think that understanding reaches President Putin. He seems to really believe that Russia and Ukraine are the same people. And if Ukrainian government doesn't want to see it that way, that means that they are puppets of the West who, who tell them otherwise. And that, I think, is, is undoubtedly dangerous. And I think the uh, troop movements behind the borders are currently still what Mark Aleotti would call heavy metal diplomacy, right? Mm-hmm. You assemble troops in order to negotiate. I think it's Russia's way of indicating that they mean it, that they mean they want to have control over Ukraine, which they hoped they had got when they signed Minsk agreements, which made Donbass effectively a Trojan horse in the Ukrainian political system. But now that the Minsk agreements are, are proving so hard to implement, um, Moscow has sort of returned to um, mm, Moscow is trying to to tell us that they need it, that they need control one way or other. If they cannot insert the Trojan horse inside the Ukrainian political system, then another option would be the West declaring that uh, Ukraine cannot join NATO and uh, get the sort of military support that would come with it. 
So one way or other, they, they want to indicate that they mean it, that they don't allow us to erode the leverage of Minsk agreements simply over time, as they think is, is happening. And that is undoubtedly dangerous. Not that the war is imminent, and I can see many, many things that also um, disincentivize that and should disincentivize that for Putin as well. I mean, there is no appetite for a war with Ukraine in Russian society, right. and the Kremlin should know it very well because they conduct opinion polls, focus groups, they know what their society thinks. And neither would military operation be a way of boosting the regime's popularity the way Crimea boosted it. But there is only one Crimea. I don't think that can be repeated. And neither, neither have I seen anyone in Moscow thinking that way. And the political system is tired. A war would be immense stress to that too. So I don't think that the war is, you know, an aim in itself. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Putin is dead set on getting what he wants. And the tragedy, of course, is that I think this is completely misplaced. I mean, something he wants something that is impossible. And not because the West denies it, but because laws of nature deny it and Ukraine. And I don't think it is possible to have control over another country that way uh, without investing the sort of resources the Soviet Union invested in controlling its neighbours. But the Kremlin doesn't seem to be seeing it that way. Yeah, and presumably um, part of the reason that it is impossible or appears to be impossible is is in fact the you know the fact that that Russia did uh, did go in and invade and, and and uh, foment separatism and that kind of drove Ukrainians for the most part further away. So I mean I guess you're saying uh, in some ways the there's little real there appears to be little real incentive uh, or, or there'd be several disincentives uh, for Russia to to you know, conduct a large-scale attack to actually try to get Ukraine, you know, by force uh, under its control. But then there are factors, uh, as we're saying, um, the kind of emotional even factor or the, or the misconception um, that that appears to be dominant, at least in, in the Kremlin. Um, and, and uh, you know, we've seen uh, you know, one of, the, one of the kind of elements leading up to this uh, uh, you know Putin's new remarks and and this buildup is also the the kind of shifting of the red lines, as some analysts have put it. You know, before NATO, uh, Russia was saying, you know, NATO membership for Ukraine is a red line. Uh, now it's more like um, any kind of expansion or or introduction of NATO forces or infrastructure in Ukraine is a red line. So that's bringing things close, you know, bringing the tension up, I, I, I would say. Now, uh, also uh, in the article, you mentioned how Russia and the West often misinterpret one another um, and wrote that, quote, the correct reading of intentions, unquote, by both sides uh, is crucial, particularly as regards Ukraine. Uh, what do you think? Um, you know, given what you said about the, uh, you know, the, the desires or, or hopes of the Kremlin being kind of misguided or outlandish, is there any chance that Russia will come to understand the West's intentions accurately? And what can the West do to better read Russia and, and avoid a potential disaster? 
yeah, I mean, sweetings are dangerous indeed. And for for many of the factors you, you mentioned, we say red lines. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure to what extent they actually have shifted. I mean, mm-hmm. many people speak about it and uh, and I can see why. But, you know, NATO membership has always been unacceptable to Russia exactly because that would bring Western military presence to Ukraine. And now that you know, the presence is, is happening uh, without NATO membership, that, that is bound to dis- displease Moscow. Um, and we end up in a sort of catch-22 situation where that the more the West supports Ukraine, the more anxious it makes Moscow. But then again, what the West can do is is still to support Ukraine because you know you are you're bound to try to support the victim and and the weaker side uh, to help it deter an an attack. So you know that conundrum sort of feeds also into feeds from misreadings and, and feeds misreadings in in a way. How to read more accurately? Um, to be honest, I think we are actually moving in, uh, in the opposite direction right now, at least as concerns the mainstream policy discussions. Uh, because you mean people are, are sorry to interrupt, you mean people are reading it more inaccurately than, than they have been? Yes, overall, yes. Uh, simply because uh, people do not talk as much as they used to. Mm-hmm. Experts, journalists, etc. Uh, vaccine wall, bit, bit, uh, vaccine curtain between Russia and the West is pretty tough. Mm-hmm. It is hard to get into Russia these days, and likewise for Russians, it's it's very complicated uh, to come to the West. And I, I see that it's having effect. The sort of discussions are going their separate ways and, uh, and becoming insulated. And, you know, the West ever more often analyzes the Russia as we imagine it. And, and likewise in, in, in Russia. Um, I mean, there are sort of always some bright spots. I think Russia has somehow uh, got President Biden right from the start, even when, you know, in the West, uh, there was uh, lots of discussion about his comment that Putin is a killer. In Moscow, that was no big deal at all, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they didn't make it a big media event, and experts immediately understood it for what it was. A journalist's question to which Biden answered by... uh, by deciding to focus on something else. Mm-hmm. So it was in a way refreshing to see that they, they seem to instinctively understand uh, President Biden's intentions um, correctly, or, well, the way I understood them, right? That, in my view, is, is obviously uh, correct. But, but otherwise, I, I think the fact that we talk and communicate less is dangerous. Plus, in Russia's case, um, there is also a vertical dimension to it. President Putin seems to be a lot more isolated than we had realized. Yet mm-hmm. again, because of pandemic, uh, but he he keeps away 
and people he meets have to quarantine quite strictly for two weeks before that. So that means that meetings are limited and and the people who meet him their own work is is hindered for some time before that and that inevitably imposes some restrictions on what kind of information can can reach him uh, and the number of, of reality checks he he can have from from outside world um, so i think he's as Angela Merkel has famously said, that he lives in another world. And I think that tendency has always been there up to a point because he has his own notions shaped by his own experiences. Uh, but I, I guess it could be deepened. So what can we do to read one another better? Uh, hard to say in the conditions of pandemic. Uh, I would say invest in diplomacy. I mean... Mm-hmm. Good old-style diplomacy, uh, using your diplomats as people who really need to understand the country where they are posted, uh, incentivize them to bring you messages from real life as opposed to news that you like to read mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so forth. Because, you know, many of the... Mm, Many diplomats and and also even intelligence agencies, uh, definitely in Russia that I know about, often they they face a dilemma whether whether you should give the news that the Kremlin wants to hear or you should give the news that you think uh, correspond to reality, mm-hmm. and there is a choice. So try to incentivize people to give you a true view of, of, of reality. That's re- really the, the small minimum, I think, that executives can do. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, um, you know, Putin's isolation, I mean, to me, it seems like he's been more, I mean, you see a lot of comments these days from, from Patrushev, the uh, Security Council secretary, uh, and other people considered hardliners who are close to him. So, you know, the question is hard to know. Certainly, I you know I have no uh, way of knowing, but you know it does seem like he may be being more influenced by by these people. I just wanted to ask a follow up question um, about diplomacy. Some people are saying uh, this, you know, at least part of of the motivation for the military buildup, uh, you know, near Ukraine and in Crimea, is an effort to get. Uh, to get Biden to to meet with Putin or talk with him, um, you know, soon within the coming weeks this year, uh, do you, do you think that's kind of a, a a major goal of of what's going on, or how do you see that? I don't think so. I um, I think Putin would have got his first summit with Biden anyway. Mm-hmm. There was no reason to assemble troops around Ukraine for that end. And now, yes, it could be that they want to get a meeting, but but they want to get a meeting to sort out the situation around Ukraine or to discuss sort of the future of, of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not like they are just blackmailing America into offering them a meeting. I I think for Putin, definitely, Ukraine is an important 
end in itself. Another question to me, of course, is to what extent that is shared by wider political establishment in Moscow. Mm-hmm. I somehow have a feeling that not everyone is equally emotional about Ukraine. But that's another question and maybe not even very relevant in this context, given how Putin is still the sole decision maker on, on foreign policy matters. Yeah, absolutely. At least the important matters. There are things that are left to uh, other people, all sorts of shady characters like Wagner Group, but, uh, but on everything that that is important for Moscow. I think Putin is the decision maker. Yes, and I guess we'll continue to wonder and see how how this develops. With you know, as as you say, and um, Putin's uh, focus, uh, his his apparent desire to have con- control over Ukraine. All right, uh, we're running out of time, and we'll wrap it up there. Kadri, very uh, nice to talk to you. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, great to have you on the podcast. Um, I'll be back again next Monday. And please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russian newsletter. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.